You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening and welcome to the September 28th edition of Eye on the Triangle. The time is 6.59 and I'm your host, John Boyer. On tonight's program, we've got all your favorite segments on the way, but we begin as Chris takes us on a little journey, all for your radio listening pleasure. If you have ever recycled an item on campus, have you ever wondered where it goes once it leaves your hands? Well, here at Eye on the Triangle this week, we decided to explore exactly that. Where does the recycling go once it's collected from the bins, and who exactly collects it? I started to get an idea of just how recycling works here at NC State in the office of Sarah Ketchum, the program manager of NC State University's Office of Waste Reduction and Recycling. We have uh, 16 collection staff. That would be both for recycling and solid waste. And then the collection staff either do actual labor to pick up the recycling and put it into the, the outdoor bins. And then we also have an automated system. So we have several drivers that drive big trucks and collect cardboard and recycling and solid waste. too. We've got a really good staff of really hardworking people that are doing a lot of work that people don't even realize happens. It's kind of behind the scenes. The staff that handles the recycling on campus falls into two divisions, the indoor crew and the outdoor crew. The indoor crew is in charge of getting the recycling from the indoor bins located in the halls and offices out into the big blue bins you see all over campus. The outdoor crew drives around in trucks, dumping those bins into large hoppers. We have a roll-off truck that we use with cart tippers on the side, so the outdoor bins actually get tipped up by an automated cart tipper into the collection vehicle. So a lot of labor getting the material out of the building, but once it gets out, it gets a lot less labor-intensive. A lot of times it's loose inside of those blue roll carts that you'll see around, so it'll it'll get brought out of taken from a bag and put into an outdoor site and the guys do a lot of times empty the the bags into the roll carts after talking to sarah i wanted to learn more about who these people actually are and what they do every day so sarah set me up with luis gaetan one morning and he gave me a better picture of how the system works on a day-to-day basis i have a three team three groups two person in each groups every single day every every group they do about 15, 22, 18 buildings a day, every every single group. So we cover a lot of buildings every day. And um, I am charged to haul and roll off. That's a lot of roll off. And every single day, just from the academy building, we collect around 3,000 pounds just for the academy building. That's how much recycling we collect. Plus the recycling we collect from the resident home. Mondays, Everywhere the recycle bin is overflowing. Everywhere. Monday and Friday, that's the heavy days. The building, the indoor collection, they do twice a week. The truck driver have to go twice a week. Just one day behind the recycling collection. Luis explained to me that the indoor collection teams have a method to make sure they hit each bin in every building. We always go from top floor, from the high floor, and we go down, if we got a bin full, we have to bring it outside and go grab another one. But that's the way we do, but we study always on top floor. According to Luis, the placement of the bins outside is very important. I always keep my recycle bin near uh, dumps. Why? Because we don't do service every single desk, every single office. So the housekeeper, when they empty the trash can, they empty the, the little tiny recycle bin. They throw the trash or cardboard or whatever, and they bring the recycle outside. 
After Luis and I inspected some buildings to make sure everything was running smoothly, Luis took me to meet an indoor crew making their rounds over in ES King Village. There, I met William Taylor, recycling man extraordinaire. Basically what we're going to do today, we're going to recycle a few bottles. It's been a little overflowing, a little lacking lately. It's a new site. Haven't been here yet. It's my first time. This is brand new to me. Basically, it's what I do all day. We recycle bottles. We recycle paper. We recycle aluminum. We recycle cardboard. We just, we, we do it all day. We go hard. We go at it. So tell me about uh, what a typical day for you consists of. Typical day would be about, um, I would say, any, anywhere from 10 to 12 buildings, uh, recycling paper. We have sites set up every floor pretty much, uh, three-bin sites, maybe a two-bin site. Got uh, We got one for paper, and then we got the, maybe the other two for bins, or vice versa, two for paper, and the other one for bins. I mean, I'm sorry, the other one for uh, bottles and cans. And, uh, I mean, it's pretty much all we do all day. Sometimes we have to do a little cardboard. Sometimes we have to do a few service requests, which might consist of uh, picking up some confidential boxes and <laughs> a few confidential boxes and uh, it's going to get a little noisy here. Going to get her to hold the bag there. It's going to get a little noisy. Bear with us. That right there is the fruit of our labor. It's the fruit of our operation there. We don't get that much money for these, but we do get a little bit. More money for paper, white goods. Things like that, metal. After everything is sorted and loaded onto the trucks, the recyclables are shipped to a 45,000 square foot state-of-the-art sorting facility located in South Raleigh and owned by Sunoco. Once there, they are offloaded and dumped onto a large open area that has a conveyor belt built into the floor. The conveyor pulls the material into a giant maze of customized conveyor belts and storage hoppers as it sorts through all the different types of recyclables. Tom Crane, a full-time plant supervisor and part-time plant tour guide, gave us the basic overview of what everything does. That big conveyor coming up from the floor feeds the main line. Over here, these guys pull the cardboard out, though, uh, and trash. That is a uh, debris screen. Uh, that is what we call a newspaper uh, screen. And what it does is you'll see the rollers, and the rollers pull the paper up and let the bottles and the cans fall down between them, where it comes up with another one up here, where it sorts it again between small paper and glass. goes over another debris screen. And what falls down here is a conveyor belt that runs under here, under there, and up over there. picks up the glass, uh, metal cans, aluminum cans, and takes those. As the conveyors snake around the bowels of the plant, the materials pass by a sorting line, which is manned by employees. Each person has their eyes peeled for a different type of recyclable, and they grab what they are after and toss them into chutes, sending the items into their corresponding hoppers, which are located below the sorting floor. Now, when you're working the conveyors, it's almost like working at the speed of light. The first girl's going to pull out uh, trash and BET that was missed by the C-Tech. This girl's going to help with the trash, the PET, and the ACB or milk jug. This girl's going to do the milk jug. This girl right here is going to help with uh, the cardboard and the colored plastic. And then this girl, this lady here, gets whatever was missed. Hey, y'all want to fill in for a minute? You, you can cancel your membership to the gym, honey, because it'll work it off of I'm looking at about 20 people right now just grabbing cardboard and throwing it into these bins off the line. This is glass flying everywhere. 
They are moving so quickly. It's unbelievable. There's about four on each line. There's about three huge lines. And then there's this big hopper. Ah, it was glass. This big hopper of water bottles behind me. One of the most interesting machines in the plant is the can sorter, which jumps aluminum cans into a bin a few feet away using an eddy current. Simultaneously, it grabs the steel materials and deposits them into another hopper located directly in front of the one that is used for the aluminum cans. Anybody who's taking physics or uh, basic electronics will tell you it's eddy current. You've got two magnets spinning in opposite directions. And it creates, creates an eddy current that affects aluminum. Aluminum is non-magnetic. But when you create an eddy current, it affects it. You know that looks like it's getting kicked off there. That's the result of that eddy current. You've got a drum spinning inside that outer drum. There's a stationary electromagnet. And as the conveyor runs, it picks up the steel can. And as it runs off the magnet, it drops into the uh, bin. Pretty simple, pretty basic, but it works. As the bins fill with recyclables, they are eventually dumped into a horizontal baler, which creates large cubes of crushed material. These bales are then loaded into trucks that haul the materials off to processing facilities where they are made into new products. Sunoco processes some of the material. They turn it into products such as paper tubes, which are used to make Pringle cans and caulking tubes. They also make all sorts of tapes, bundle wraps, coasters, toothbrush holders, and many other products. I talked briefly with Jim Foster, the plant manager, about Sunoco's global presence. Most of the fiber we try to use internally. We have 26 plants to do something similar to what we do here. We have paper mills globally. We have a paper mill in China. We have three paper mills in this region here, one in Richmond, uh, one in uh, Newport, Tennessee, and one in Hartsville, South Carolina. So we'll ship to those three. We'll export quite a bit. China's become a, a large paper producer, so a lot of materials are being shipped overseas. And uh, as a matter of fact, there's more containers with full of waste paper than any other product shipped out of the United States. So it's the, the most exported material from our country. Recycling takes a lot of work. It requires a lot of people to work together and a lot of coordination. The trip your bottle takes once it leaves your hands is long and complicated, but it's well worth the benefits. By diverting recyclables from the landfill, not only does it reduce waste, but it gives a bottle a new life. Who knows? Maybe next time when you open your favorite snack food, a familiar polymer will peer out from under some delicious cookies. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Chris Chaffee. Welcome back to Eye on the Triangle. I'm your host, John Boyer, and the time is 7.10 here on WKNC. A reminder that you can let us know what you think of the program by sending us a tweet at WKNCEOT or WKNC881. On Saturday, our correspondent Mason Morris joined me as we talked to people who turned out for the Live It Up on Hillsborough Street Festival. We'll hear from many of them during the course of the hour, but first, I wanted to share our VIP interview with Jen Hallwell. In an email earlier today, Jen estimated that the attendance for the festival was between fifteen and 20000 and that several thousand dollars were raised for charities. Here's our conversation. I on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. Okay, I'm Jen Hallwell. I'm CEO of Legacy Event Planners, and we're the nonprofit that was actually formed by three NCSU students, so Will McGuire, Joseph Hall, and myself. And we um, started an event a couple years ago called the Hillsborough Street Renaissance Festival. I don't know if you guys attended it in March of 2009. And then that event, the city liked it so much that they decided to back it as their grand opening celebration and rename it the Live It Up Festival. And so the goal is to hopefully make this an annual event that partners students volunteering with community members to produce it. Have you um, this morning seen more students or more families from the area? 
like there's been a really equal mix. We that was something we were really worried about because last year when we did it in the pouring rain, we mostly only got kind of students trudging over through the snow and ice and rain. But this year we had, I mean, you can even just look around you. There's so many family people. Almost all these restaurants along the street have been filled with both students and family. And we, we tried to do a good mix of events for that. So like we had a huge kids zone with face painting to get the families out and like blow up jump equipment and hula hoops and things like that. Um, and like the Iron Chef competition, which does bring students, but a lot of the local community really likes to come out and see what the chefs cook. Um, so we've gotten, you know, a good mix of both things. And then, of course, the students come over and enjoy the, the beer zone if they're of age. And, and there's all these vendors. So I think it's a good mix. So what were you up to just now? I was actually helping sell tasting samples for the Iron Chef competition. So we've had this four-round competition of some of the best chefs in the um, area, including um, chefs from Porter's, Frazier's, City Market, and um, Chapel Hill Country Club. And so every round they've been serving these samples of what they've cooked that the public can taste. Um, so not just, I mean, they win the rounds based on the three judges and what the judges pick. That's how we determine who wins. But we give the public a chance to kind of get their say too and see who they like best. All of the proceeds go to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation and the Engineers Without Borders and CSU chapter. So very, very worthy causes. You talked about the belly dancers. Did you get to actually witness that? Yeah, they were adorable. They were these little girls in these purple belly dancing get-ups, and and they they were absolutely adorable. Another really good one was um, the the hip-hop group Fusion, I think they're called, on NC State's campus performed. They drew a huge crowd. Like, over 100 people circled them. You could not see. They didn't perform actually on the stage. They went down and broke it down right there on the street, and we got such a crowd around them, you couldn't see them. You had to, like, walk up onto the hills to see over the crowd to see them dance. So, so NC State definitely represented on its dance crew side. So you have a good feeling about this Live It Up Festival happening again in the future? Yeah, the goal has always been to make this sort of an annual event. So, like, Raleigh has Raleigh Wide Open downtown, but we really want something that really gets the students to have a festival right at their front door and showcase the businesses. And really, so, like, Hillsborough Street's always served as this dividing line. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but I just feel like, for the last couple of years, you've got the street, and one side's the community, and one side's the students. Like, they'll never meet. And so we're really trying to start doing more events on this area that really combine the two communities. And we are, just to give a plug for it if I can, we're trying to recruit new volunteers for students to get involved. We give academic credit and internship credit to a lot of our students. So everything from business to PR, marketing, accounting. Um, we have internship opportunities where they get set up with a community mentor to help plan events in this area that revitalize the area. So... I guess just sort of my, my closing thought is to try and get a sense for how Hillsborough Street feels different to you. Now, just today, the atmosphere, the game, what's um, your feeling? My feeling is it's the first time in a long time that I've seen the street really vibrant and diverse and like people just really excited to be here and be present. Like We really had something for everyone. You mentioned the game days and I totally forgot about We had that giant screen TV for everyone to watch the game and now that State's finally winning, we've got someone to really cheer for which is great. Um, you know, we had the different artisans and the vendors. We had a glass blower that's out there, you know, blowing glass so you can watch how to do it on the street. So there really is that diversity getting pulled together, and, and it, it has a good feel to it. What about you? What's your feel even coming towards later in the, the evening? What's your take? I mean, obviously the people are tapering down, but this is still more people than you would ever see on Hillsborough Street at any time of day or night for any reason except, of course, today. It actually feels like something's really kind of coming together today. Hopefully, hopefully there's changes yeah. in the air. 
eye on the triangle. Evan's opinions on the latest news. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. I'm registered to vote in North Carolina's 2nd Congressional District, comprised of parts of 10 counties and known more for the quality of its fried chicken and barbecue than of its politics. We take more pride in cultivating our hams and yams than we do our politicians, so it shouldn't come as a surprise when someone like Renee Elmers, a ham in her own right yet not so cultivated, winds up snatching the Republican nomination for U.S. Congress. Sarah Palin dubbed her a mama grizzly, and to some she even appears to exhibit measurable neurological activity. An asinine advertisement that her campaign aired last week garnered national attention and should prove otherwise. In her 30-second commercial, representations flash across the screen of what an authoritative male voice dubs victory mosques, constructed at sites of early Arab and Ottoman conquests in Jerusalem, Cordoba, and Istanbul. Next, an image of Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan is shown, where the voice says they, referring to Muslims, want to build another victory mosque. The segment ends with a quip from Elmer's that is as short as any of the planks in her campaign platform that are available on her website. Looking rather befuddled, she says in almost slurred speech, and I quote, The terrorists haven't won, and we, shouldn't, and we should tell them in plain English, no, there will never be a mosque at ground zero, end quote. It doesn't take a degree in Middle Eastern history or Islamic studies to see that the language Elmer's chooses makes vast generalizations and is completely devoid of analytical thought. The words they, them, Muslims, and terrorists are used almost interchangeably in an attempt to engender in the viewer the concept of a hostile other that seeks to alter our values in the society in which we live. In this context, they, defined as all Muslims, not the few thuggish members of al-Qaeda responsible for the destruction at Ground Zero. Those responsible for the planning of the Islamic Center in Lower Manhattan could not be more different, as they have tried to make clear on numerous occasions from the small percentage of Islamic revivalists that still pose an existential threat to the United States. But that isn't the point of any of this. Elmer's exploitation of this controversy serves only one purpose, the advancement of her political career. She couldn't care less about the people she tramples on during this campaign, so long as they're a slim minority, a sign of, true, of a true mama grizzly. By pandering to the fears of Christian voters, throwing all historical nuances to the curb, and throwing all of her Muslim constituency under the bus, Renee Elmers shows her spinelessness, moral bankruptcy, and contempt for people that believe differently than she does. At 2700 Murchison Road in Fayetteville, North Carolina, three miles from Simmons Army Airfield and just within the boundary of the 2nd District, there stands a mosque named Masjid Omar Ibn Said. Renamed in 1996 after an African-American Muslim slave who lived in the area during the early 1800s, it serves as a quiet house of worship for a small Islamic community that Renee Elmers wants to represent. What it symbolizes isn't Muslim conquest, but rather a growing multicultural city in which any religion may be practiced freely alongside any other. It exists because of American laws, values, and traditions, not in spite of them. The candidacy of Renee Elmers flies in the face of that simple truth and is insulting to the diverse people of North Carolina's 2nd Congressional District. Both she and the contrived controversy surrounding the proposed Islamic Center in Lower Manhattan should quickly be forgotten. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. This week at NC State, there's lots to do and even more to look at. 
On Wednesday, there will be a technician forum held at 6 p.m. in the Brown Room at the Tally Student Center. Stop by and share suggestions, comments, or concerns about the NC State paper and brush shoulders with the technician staff. Also on Wednesday, as Campus Farmers, a, the Campus Farmers Market will be held in the Brickyard in front of D.H. Hill Library. However, this Wednesday in the Brickyard, there will be more activity than usual. As a nice treat, there will be a Triangle Transit Authority bus parked smack dab in the middle of the Brickyard. Inspired by World Fruit... Inspired by World Car Free Day, World Car Free Week, September 20th through September 24th, Redefined Travel and NC State Wolf Trails are partnering with Triangle Transit to temporarily transform a Triangle Transit bus into an art gallery for a day on September 29th. The designer for the project is Marie Hermanson, a landscape architecture student in NC State's design school, and the theme of this design is Strings in Time. The bus will be available for viewing from 10 a.m. until 7 p.m. On Thursday, September 30th at 4.30 p.m. in Withers Hall, room 331, there will be a lecture in philosophy by Mark Richard, a Harvard University professor who will discuss what is disagreement. All are welcome to attend. Also on Thursday and running until October 3rd, the University Theater will be staging Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, it's not too uncommon for a person to love someone who has desperately fallen for someone else. Shakespeare's concept takes the play a step further and is perfectly harmonious blend of comedy, 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 drama, and mystery presented by the fine cast of NC State's gifted student actors. Brilliant director John McAwee will be putting a modern twist on the classic tale by setting it in the 1920s Riviera. The show is held at the Stewart Theater and starts at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday and runs through Saturday night. There will also be matinees on Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Movies this weekend at the University Cinema in Witherspoon Hall are Toy Story 3, Babies, which is a documentary about cultural, cultural differences revolving around the first year of life, and there will be a special presentation of one of my personal favorite movies, Back to the Future, on Friday night. For more information on the movies being shown this weekend at the theater, check out their website, ncsu.edu slash cinema. Now, finally, on Monday, October 4th, in the Witherspoon Cinema at 6.30 p.m., Saul Flores, a design student here at NC State, will be presenting his talk, The Walk of the Integrant. As a way to lift the curtains of cultural censorship, he will be displaying the photographs he took on his journey from Quito, Ecuador, to Charlotte, North Carolina. Come see him share his life-changing story and get a chance to meet him and talk to him after his presentation. And now it is time for Weather with Kathy. Cool. Thank you, Chris. We actually have a very interesting forecast for the next couple days. Currently, though, let's talk about what happened today. We did see some blue sky and, and some sunshine. I hope everyone was able to take advantage of that sunshine because it won't be around for the next couple days. Currently, though, at RDU, it's 78 degrees right now, and the winds are coming from the west at 5 miles per hour. We actually got cloud cover starting to come back over us from the east. It's due to a cold front that's actually pushing backwards, and it's filling our skies again with clouds. And as we head throughout the overnight hours, those clouds are going to continue to build, and our atmosphere is going to be more soaked with moisture as we head throughout the night. And we expect that rain to start falling again when we wake up early Wednesday morning. We'll expect low temperatures in the low 60s, and lots of rain for your morning commute tomorrow. And as we head throughout the day on Wednesday, that rain's going to continue to fall. We expect locally heavy rains at times. 
And now this rain that we do expect on Wednesday, we don't expect to be associated with a tropical storm yet. This is all with a front that's going to be over our area, bringing in moisture off the ocean. But that rain throughout Wednesday will keep our temperatures only in the low 70s. Now, on a side note, let's head now to the tropics currently. We've got a tropical depression number 16 out in the Caribbean with winds at 35 miles per hour. It's moving to the north-northeast at 10 miles per hour. The hurricane's hunters did go into the system this afternoon, found no evidence of it being a tropical storm. But the Hurricane Center does forecast the storm to become a tropical storm, which will be named Nicole, over the next couple days. And it's forecasted to be off the Carolina coast by Thursday morning. Now, as we head throughout the day on Thursday, that's when all of our rain will be associated with this system, we expect. And several inches could fall over our area, all added up on Thursday to be well over perhaps three inches, even five inches maybe through the area, perhaps more. It all depends on where this system exactly tracks over when it comes inland and where that center of the storm tracks over could receive the heaviest amount of rain or the most amount. And currently right now, there's already a flash flood watch in effect for Wilmington till 8 a.m. Friday morning. And this flash flood watch could be extended further inland as the storm continues to head our way. Now, so overall, as we head through the next couple days, it's going to be very interesting. Hopefully the rain gear will be your best friend. And flooding will be major concern, though, for especially for Wilmington, even over our areas, especially low-lying areas. Um, several inches of rain are expected, so flooding will be a major concern. Now, Friday and the weekend look to be gorgeous. Temperatures around the upper 60s to low 70s, even overnight lows perhaps in the upper 40s. I never thought we'd have temperatures like that again after such a hot summer the past few months. But it is looking like temperatures are eventually going to fall like that. And But what we've got to do is get through the next couple of days with all the rain. And hopefully people will be wary of the flood flooding that we could have in perhaps some places throughout the area. So for more information on what's the weather update, Check out the Twitter feed at NCSU Weather because that's where we're going to be providing updates on our weather for the next couple days. And right now I will give it back to John Boyer, and thanks for having me here tonight. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, You know, I'm really excited by the fact that I did get a uh, football game ticket for Saturday, and I'm even more excited now that I know that the temperatures are actually going to feel like football weather. Yeah, temperatures down in the 70s, uh, morning lows. I'll actually get to wear uh, fall clothing now, long sleeves and everything. It's going to be great. But, of course, do keep in mind that, you know, the weather threats exist out there, and you can stay up to date, as Kathy said, at NCSU Weather. But coming up next, we'll have a break. When we come back, we'll hear from more people who were out at the Hillsborough Street Festival. Also, we'll take a look at the 4-0 start to the football season, and uh, Mark is going to be cooking up some neat things here in the studio. Well, not really. We don't have anything to cook with, but figuratively. We'll be talking about it, and it's all on the way next. Well, the time is now 7.27 here on WKNC. I wanted to thank you for staying with us and listening. Actually, it's 7.28. Thank you for staying here and listening to Eye on the Triangle. I'm your host, John Boyer. And if you do want to get in touch with the show, have something you like, something you don't like, something you disagree with, or a suggestion or a comment, uh, Twitter. It's a great way to get in touch with us, WKNC EOT or WKNC 88.1, or email publicaffairs at WKNC.org. Now it's time to go hit Hillsborough Street once again with some sound bites. Sound bites on Eye on the Triangle. Opinions from around NC State and the rest of the Triangle. While enjoying the Hillsborough Street Festival, John Boyer and I saw several students lounging outside of North Hall. There, we spoke with Ellery Ward, a sophomore in chemical engineering and Spanish. We asked of her experiences so far. I kind of liked it because there were no cars. I mean obviously, but it was kind of cool just to walk around and see all kinds of different things. And we saw some belly dancers, which some actually some child belly dancers, which was a little uncomfortable. 
but um oh but we found this really cool jewelry and we saw some people blowing glass which i'd never seen before and um i don't know i liked it so if they had this again you would come again even if you didn't live here right i'm sure i would yes did you feel like having the event pushed you to explore hillsboro more than you had before well, since I live on Hillsboro, I go out a lot. But but last um, last year, I kind of explored Hillsboro anyway, while, while the construction was going on. But it's much better now. And but yeah, it sort of did. I guess not force me to, but I did go all the way down to the end, so it was cool. So you already told us a little about what you saw. Uh, was there a favorite, or was that the child belly dancers? Uh, no, that was not my favorite. <laughs> uh, probably just the jewelry, because we we um, met this really cool lady who she just finds random pieces that are really unique and um, just makes jewelry out of them and just from places like all, just all over the world. And it was cool just to hear the, some of the things that she found. So that was probably my favorite. Did you make any purchases? Yes, I bought something from her. I bought a necklace. How did you hear about the Hillsborough Street Festival? I didn't hear about it as much as I just heard it outside. <laughs> Today, I actually I saw something about it on Facebook, but I didn't really think much about it. But then today, I came outside and it was here. So, so you're familiar with the changes from Hillsborough Street from last year to this year. So what's your feeling on all of that? All the improvements, or is it not improvement? I think the road looks much better, and it's way better for pedestrians. But I think the building fronts still don't look very good. But you know, it's just every like one thing at a time. And I, but I think it really has improved. Do you feel like NC State embodies any particular feeling? that is brought out by the Hillsborough Street Festival? Well, I think it's really diverse, and I, that was definitely part of the festival because there were just so many different things, like the child belly dancers, and then they had taekwondo people and Chinese dancers, and it was just like, I, I really think that kind of represented NC State because we're so diverse. I'm just sort of thinking, you know, there's this going on, there's that 4-0 start. Everybody feels like they're happier today. I think that the fact that we're winning is definitely helping the mood. It's helping my mood, I know, because I watched the game today and it was fantastic. And I think they watched it here on, there was a screen or something, I don't know. And so I, I feel like there's a cause for celebration, so that kind of is, helps. Because Hillsborough's reopening is ultimately about the businesses that exist on it, John and I decided to speak next with the owners of Reverie Coffee Shop. We wanted to get their perspectives on the long-anticipated reopening of the street and the process that led up to it. It's much nicer, cleaner. Um, people is more invited to people come here. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's a long way. You know, this construction is waiting for a long, long time. I think we're optimistic. It remains to be seen whether the investment of $10 million will pan out. Uh, but right now we're optimistic. Yeah, I think all the businesses would tell you along the strip here that they were probably down 20 to 30 percent. However, with, I think us being a small business, we are, our customers, is, they're very loyal. It's not like we depend on the people who come from other parts of the town. So we probably wouldn't, wouldn't affect much as we thought we will. But, uh, you know, university was always here, has always supported the business during all this construction. We all appreciate that. Hillsborough Street? Well, I think it went through... Uh, somewhat of a recession, not from economically, but just everything got old along here. Uh, the merchants didn't really take care of their businesses. Business fronts looked pretty beleaguered. Uh, and I think if, if the street renovation does anything, it'll spur, uh, I hope, a fix-up uh, of a lot of the merchants uh, for their front of their businesses. And hopefully that'll lead to uh, more business. Absolutely. A lot of people say, oh, uh, they know you guys are here, they know you guys say there's good coffee, and know you guys sell Larry's beans, uh, and uh, they'll be my new place, comments like that. It was very, very rewarding. It really was. We 
We did some specials. We tried to reduce a little bit of the price, especially on sweet iced coffee, because it was a hot day. So, you know, we dropped those prices, uh, you know, good amount, so everybody can t t try and brew some different coffees as well for people to try. I think was a lot of more people who wants to see Hillsbury Street was not much the students itself, no staff at all. I think new people came today, you know, the people who were already here seven days a week didn't show up as much as. Yeah. I agree. Now before or during the construction, did you ever consider relocating or? No, never, never. No, we, all of us are we were primary. Willing, willing to stick it out. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We just love just being close. Actually, we feel like we're a part of the university now, you know, we really do. And uh, we support the events that they do. We always open them, the library, wherever they need us, we always there for them. So it's never an option to move. During the Hillsborough Street Festival, many outside vendors had set up camp. We stopped by to ask two such vendors how their day was going. Mike Riley. Anthony Davis. I, I've come around state and around the area. I, I do other jobs and made deliveries and stuff here. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I know a little bit about the state and the campus. Yeah, this is my only second time coming around the area. Just moved here a couple years ago. So. I'm say we're in gypsies, you know. I mean, we do, uh, we do a lot of shows. We set up food and stuff for these shows. Um, we do festivals, we do fairs, we're going to be at the NC State Fair this year again. We uh, were one of the biggest tents at the fair, we're right by the grandstand. If you want fried anything, we got it. So, <clears throat> we do shows everywhere from Mississippi to Massachusetts. Had a few, probably half the, not half, but about half the people that have come up and asked have been looking for where the beer's at. But um, for the most part, yeah, it's been a, quite a variety. I mean, we've had lots of kids, and you've seen quite a bit of everything around here. Middle-aged, uh, and I'm sure, you know, a little bit of alumni and so on. Quite a bit of students. We saw the cheerleaders walk by many times, so. Yeah, so yeah. now all the, the skateboarders and the bikers coming out right now. So. I walked around a little bit. I walked down to, like, um, where the smoothie place is, Planet Smoothie. Um, there's been quite a few people down there in that area. I haven't seen enough down here at the stage checking out the music, but the music's been good today. Probably what I've found is the more elongated the festival, the more it, you don't get as much, the traffic is a little more mixed, whereas if it's in a uh, more of a rounded area or square, um, people tend to mingle around more um, yeah. check out other things. And to stay around and check out more of the sites and check out all the shops. <laughs> yeah, State Fair is going to be good. Anything you like about the North Carolina State Fair in particular? Um, well, I mean, it's just fun to go every year. I mean, I everybody goes for the food, and um, you can't argue with the food. Uh, that far is the biggest state fair I've ever seen, so. <laughs> <laughs> What's the favorite thing that you guys make? Oh, the funnel cakes funnel are the cake. best. Funnel cakes are the best. We just had 20 funnel cakes in 10 minutes. <laughs> Agreed. Do you guys have to practice to, like, or does it just come with uh Experience. Oh no, they're pretty easy to make. They're they're not too bad. I learned about ten minutes late to this man right here. <laughs> After many years of going back and forth between display and decommission, the color wall has existed as a prominent piece of public Raleigh art since 1972. Created by Joe Cox, the color wall, which had suffered many years of disrepair, enjoyed a grand relighting at the Hillsborough Street Festival. We asked two Raleigh residents for their reactions to the revitalized piece 
and the day's events. I'm Carol Fry, and this is my husband, Ed Miller. Well, I'm personally happy to see that uh, it's being uh, reinvigorated again. It, uh, it's, it's kind of a shame that it was uh, not used or was uh, broken for so long. So it's a, it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was just library stacks, honestly. I had never even noticed it there before. We've lived in Raleigh for a long time. We stopped for dinner down at the Noodle Place, and uh, we heard some good music. This is the first time we ever been. We saw in the paper this morning the story about the color wall, so we decided to come late so we could see it. So, do you have any former involvements with NC State, or how long have you been a part of living yes. down here in Raleigh? I, well, I was a grad student here. And our daughter went here. She graduated in 08, and right now I'm a grad student here. Uh, I'm in the Master's of Liberal Studies program, so we're all going for NC State degrees in our family. <laughs> you know, I graduated 12 years ago from grad school here, and it's, uh, it's a much nicer campus, more interesting and, uh, I guess, more compelling to, to walk around and enjoy uh, the beauty of it. I think it's a great place to go to school. Um, I uh, use the Wolf Line bus, and I love the Wolf Line, and all of my fe- fellow passengers are very nice and friendly, and the bus runs on time, and so, <laughs> so I enjoy that, and um, yeah, I mean, the campus is great. Yeah, and I think the improvements on Hillsborough Street are really Oh, they're fabulous. Too. I love the roundabout. I noticed that to a great deal of, of lots of college students on this end, and the farther I guess eastward as you go, that looked like uh, there were more uh, older people. From the neighborhood. uh, From the neighborhood, They could keep things open later. I mean, we got here, what, about 6.30, and there were a lot of places were already starting to shut down. They really ought to stay open till 10. If they're going to say that the festival lasts till 10, they'll stay open till 10. For Eye on the Triangle, this has been Mason Morris and John Boyer. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. So I'm joined here tonight by the Technician Sports staff. Uh, please introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm Tyler Everett, and I'm here with Taylor Barber. So uh, I heard we won a football game this weekend. That makes us uh, 4-0, right? That's exactly right. Uh, I'm a guy that's usually a little negative. It's, it's hard to contain the excitement this year, though. It was tough after the Cincinnati game, and it's only getting harder. After what the Pack did down in Atlanta, they made it two wins over defending conference champs in a row. They beat Cincinnati a couple weeks ago, Beat who won the Big East. They beat Georgia Tech and won the ACC Saturday. Georgia Tech came in with one of the best running games in the country. The option, they run it well. They really run it incredibly well, and State had really very few problems with it. Um, came out, Georgia Tech had a hard time getting out of their backfield from start to finish. They were well below their season, season average of yardage. Um, the plays they did get, they had a series of big, you know, they had several big plays, but very few drives they ever put together. It was um, a big play here and there, but uh, State had a number of three and outs, held Georgia Tech to, I believe, 4 of 14 on third down. Nate Irving really had a, a breakout game, if there ever was one, a career high. 16 tackles, four and a half for loss, two sacks, couldn't have done more. He highlighted the defense's effort, and the offense looked pretty sharp too, didn't Taylor? Oh, yeah, the offense, I mean, once again, Russell Wilson just playing just what Russell Wilson does. I mean, over 300 yards passing, three touchdowns, one rushing touchdown, spreading the ball around, hitting, I think, eight different receivers. I mean, 
if he's not in the Heisman talks right now, there it, there's really a kind of a problem with it. I mean, Wilson has thoroughly just shown, and as long as the state keeps winning him, mean, he's got to be there, and he's got to be up in New York come January when the Heisman goes around. I mean, consistently putting up numbers, his third straight or his second straight 300-yard passing game, third straight or third of the season out of just four games, and it, I mean, it makes you wonder where all that talk up was in the preseason, the ACC media, about Wilson. I mean, he was third or fourth receiving votes for quarterback behind Nesbitt, behind Christian Ponder, who was named the ACC preseason player of the year. What has he done? I mean, Wilson just got no love and has just come through and really just proved everyone that all his doubters wrong and just, I mean, made this offense really a huge threat. And, I mean, through the air and then with the running game moving a little, I mean, Mustafa Green, Dean Haynes both combined for, I think, over 150 yards. Green's looked awesome. Haynes looked a lot better than he has uh, last week when he had those two fumbles. And, I mean, just really dual threat offensively with the passing and rushing attack. Yep. Amazing how balanced it's been. Everybody expected, or at least every state fan expected Russell to put up big numbers week in and week out with Jarvis Williams, Owen Spencer, and George Bryant. Scary thing for opposing defenses is those three are just a part of it this year. He he had 11 different receivers against Cincinnati, had hit 10 different receivers by halftime against Georgia Tech. That's nearly impossible to defend. Both his running backs are catching the ball. Dean Haynes and Mustafa Green have both shown an ability to double as pass receivers in addition to being running backs in only a, their first couple of games. Taylor Gentry has 50 yards and two touchdowns as the fullback. You know, and- your fullback's got more touchdowns than several of your receivers. One of your top receivers, Owen Spencer, still hasn't found the end zone, and yet you're putting up 45 one week, 30 the week before. These are against quality opponents. Um, Taylor touched on this with the running game opening up, too. The balance of this offense is phenomenal. Russell can throw it everywhere. He can run. His backs can run. His backs can catch the ball. Even guys like a fullback who normally wouldn't touch the ball as a threat in the flats. He had a big play, broke a couple tackles down the sideline. Taylor Gentry did. Um, it, it's got to be a defensive coordinator's nightmare because so many – so many defenses can zero in on either the passing game or the running game, and even when you have a passing game and a running game, it's well in the passing game we're, we're focused on these two or three guys, or in the running game we're focused on you know one back running maybe to one side behind the offensive line. State's doing everything well. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that just it, it, like I said, it's a nightmare for an opposing defense. Yeah, I mean, going along those lines, I mean, with your passing attack, usually you have your quarterback, you focus on him. You got one receiver that's really your just your number one guy that you double team. I mean, with this with this offense, you have no one to double team. Whether I mean, you're going to put two on Jarvis Williams, he's going to it's throw to, Owen, he's going to, throw to Owen Spencer, he's going to throw to T.J. Graham, Stephen Howard. You, you double team them, Jarvis Williams, um, George Bryan. I mean, there's going to be guys open no matter what. And I mean, it really is. I mean, like you said, it's a nightmare for defensive coordinators trying to judge that. Sounds like there's going to be a lot of double teaming out there. So what do we have to look forward to this week? We have a game against Virginia Tech, right? Oh, yeah. The, the Virginia Tech game is going to be, I mean, like like Georgia Tech, that was a huge game. And I think Virginia Tech is still the best opponent we'll face this season. They, yeah, they've had some trouble. They lost to Boise State in a close game, which was a lot closer than everyone thinks. And Boise State might have a chance to play for the national championship this year. And then I think with that game, that Monday game, they had a little hangover coming from that and lost to the James Madison. Didn't bring their A game whatsoever. Got back on track with against ECU and Boston College these past two weeks. They're a two and two team, but I mean they're dangerous. Offensively, they're really dangerous. They got Ryan Williams, who was the ACC player of the year last year. Tarod Taylor's continued to get better. In my opinion, a poor man's Russell Wilson. He has that running ability, he has that passing ability, not near as accurate as Wilson. But the defense will know kind of what to expect with that. 
And then along with that, I mean, the the big thing against Virginia Tech, I think we're going to have a chance, is that defense, because that defense is very young. Yep. I mean, if State's performance against experienced defense is any indication, they've, they've got a great chance to have their way against Virginia Tech. Young guys like that, uh, there's a great chance they won't know what hit them Saturday at 3.30 at Carter-Finley. Um, another thing to touch on is it's kind of interesting how the schedule's unfolded. It really has almost been like a staircase. It, it, you could make a very compelling argument that each week has been harder than the week before. Western was a bit of a cupcake. Central, tough, but not an ACC-level team. Cincinnati, a good team last year, lost a lot, pretty good, probably even better when we went down to Georgia Tech. Coming back home for Virginia Tech, a team that looked every bit the equal of Boise State, who might very well be in the national championship conversation even more so than they already are. Virginia Tech's a top-level team, and it's really interesting to see how State can ramp it up another notch. But, I mean, a lot of a lot of folks said after Central Florida, so what? What are they going to do against Cincinnati? Cincinnati game wasn't close. Cincinnati turned around a week later and gave Oklahoma, eighth-ranked Oklahoma all they wanted. Um, so, you know, maybe Cincinnati's inconsistent. Maybe they're a great team that we embarrassed. And then Georgia Tech won the ACC a year ago. They've still got, you know, a good opportunity to do so again. When you run an option attack like that, the most important player is your quarterback. The fact that they returned him, we shut that down that convincingly. There's very little reason to believe State can't hang with Virginia Tech. Um, revenge is always a big factor. People sometimes forget about that with football players. It's an extremely emotional game. Pack was humiliated last year. Me and Taylor went to that game in person. It was a disaster. I think three of the first five plays or something ridiculous like that were turnovers. It wasn't close. Um, this Everybody on this team is back pretty much besides – Every notable player besides Mustafa Green and Dean Haynes was there last year. They remember that feeling in Blacksburg. Virginia Tech's going to have something coming to them. You've got every reason to believe after what happened last year. Um, like I said, that's a that's a hard thing to underestimate is, is what happened the year before. You, you're not going to beat a team convincingly two years in a row. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. It's going to be – I mean, there's going to be looking for revenge. They, I mean, they really did get humiliated last year. And this is – I mean, this is the biggest statement game they've had. They just got ranked number 23 AP poll after Virginia Tech. They're 4-0 right now. I mean, can you, the, can you imagine what it would be like if they're sitting at 5-0 and after this Virginia Tech game? Yeah. They come in and win. They definitely have the chance. Offensively, I have no doubt that we can put up 30, 40 points against this defense. So defensively, it's just see if they can stop it. And, I mean, if so, you got to think we're up there. We're in the t- the teens. you got to put us in the high teens as 5-0. and yeah, I think around 15 mm-hmm. if State wins this game. The only um, undefeated team in the ACC a, remaining. A lot of the doubters are gone. There's starting to be a little murmur here and there amongst the national scene. Maybe State's a dark horse in the ACC. State beats Virginia Tech this weekend. You're going to be hearing all about State being the favorite. You know, people are going to be wondering just how high up should they be ranked with five, at five and zero with wins over potentially. Not saying this would be a win, but if it is, the resume would be you know almost phenomenal this this early in the season after you know two days into October with that many wins over quality opponents. Now I know NC State has a a good habit of being ranked high and then just getting a little basted. Do you think that this is a factor coming into this weekend? As a, like I said earlier, I'm generally a pessimist. I'm usually the first one to you know wait for the guys to read their press clippings and let it get to their head. They're saying all the right things right now, which is huge. But more importantly than anything, everything we've seen about O'Brien's team has indicated they've got great character um, off the field, on the field. More importantly, on the field, though, State has not – I mean, point out to me a game State's lost over the past couple of years where they underachieved, where they let a team worse and then win. They lost these past couple of years because they were playing against teams that were better. They weren't making mental mistakes and playing down to people. Amato's teams, the last time State was ranked, 2002, 2003, great teams, ton of pro talent. You look at the losses those years, those losses weren't because State ran into better teams. They were because they let teams beat them that they shouldn't have because they weren't pedal to the metal all the time and – 
I haven't seen O'Brien's team underperform yet. I've seen him make mistakes. Turnovers are going to happen, those things. But the type of lack of efforts a lot of times you see when a team gets their hype up, I don't see that happening with O'Brien's team. I just, I've seen no indication that it would happen. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say underperform. They're, I mean, last year we came in with those huge expectations. Everyone, they were the trendy pick. They were the dark horse team to win the ACC last year. Had a nice, a lot easier schedule than we have this year. And, I mean, we all saw what happened. We ended up 5-7, and seven, no bowl game, getting blown out on a couple of different occasions against Clemson, against Boston College. There were all some really ugly games. And that's the kind of thing I'm worried about is that chance if we kind of buy into ourselves. But I think a lot of this is an a really mature, this is an old team built with some juniors, seniors that went through that last season. Russell Wilson went understood that. They've gone through that kind of that kind of hype and I think they saw what happens when you buy into it like the, what happened last season. I think they've learned from that and like I said, I think the product of what this is and what really has helped is that this is O'Brien's team now. He's got his guys in doing what they want. They're buying into the system. I mean, O'Brien, I think at the beginning of the year, I heard in one of his press conferences, made it one of the best statements I heard. He goes, no one remembers those first Boston College years, those first three to four years when they were awful, when he was getting his players in, people were buying into the system. They remember the later years when O'Brien has his fifth-year seniors in there, those juniors that have been into the system for a while and are buying in and came here because of O'Brien. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing the benefit of his his schemes and just the players buying into it. All right, so guys, final predictions of the score for the week for this weekend. Who um, it's rough. I don't want to predict, but it, if I had to say, I'm I'm feeling something along maybe. Hopefully, I'd say thirty-eight twenty-eight. Yeah, Virginia. Uh. 38-28 NC State. Wilson having another huge day. Defense playing well. It's gonna. They're a fast team in Virginia Tech, so they're gonna defense playing well, and we're getting enough just to take the win. I'll go a little closer. I think we're gonna win too. I, I just have a good feeling about it. Um, I'll say 31-28, evenly played game. Uh, that crowd's gonna be the craziest crowd. I think anybody at school right now has seen in their time at State, unless they've been here for you know 15 years. I, it, it's gonna be a crowd like nothing people have seen before. I think that's going to be the difference. 31-28 Wolfpack. All right, gentlemen, thank you guys for coming in, as always, and we will talk to you next week. All right, looking forward to it. Appreciate it. Well, Mark joins us now, and uh, you know, the past several weeks you've been doing restaurant reviews, but you're changing it up a little today. We've got a recipe, some food. Yeah, just a little bit. And I still haven't had dinner yet, so take it easy. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, so if there is one food culture that knows how to stretch a few ingredients to make a fulfilling meal or make the best of seasonal produce, it belongs to the Italians. As a descendant of poor Italian immigrants, I was lucky to grow up in an environment with good, simple food. Simpl- simplicity is the cornerstone of the Italian kitchen. It is hard to cook good Italian food, not because it requires precise techniques or skills, but because the crux of Italian cooking is that the ingredients are near perfect, and only a cook can manage to screw this perfection up. Yet because of this one essential thing, Italian food lends itself to cooking on a budget, ironically. Last week was a tight week for me. I had some stale bread hanging around and a few vegetables here and there, but it didn't really feel like completely restocking the kitchen. I, don't, I didn't see too much inspiration in the pantry, except for one idea, ribolita. Ribolita is a Tuscan soup made with whatever is lying around. 
It has some carrot, celery, onion, tomato, perhaps some beans or peas, and dark greens. The soup is thickened up with stale bread. Last week was a pretty crappy week, too, and I knew that the, sp- the soup would definitely hit the spot and lift my spirits. The recipe for ribolita is very simple. Directly translated, it means reboiled. There's no better way to use leftovers and miscellaneous ingredients lying around, in my opinion. First, I chopped up a carrot, some celery, and an onion, and added it to a large pot with some olive oil in the bottom. This dish is extremely rustic, so there's no need to agonize over the cutting of the veggies. Just make sure that they're more or less the same size, so they cook uniformly. While I was out at the store, I picked up a bulb of fennel, which is commonly available in the grocery stores these days. Fennel has a slightly sweet licorice taste, but when cooked down, the flavor really has no comparison. It's a staple in the Tuscan kitchen. I let the veggies cook on medium-high heat, letting them caramelize. This is the key to unleashing the flavor of any ingredient, caramelization. Imagine the difference between eating a sugar cube and a caramel. The caramel has a deeper complexity that the sugar cube lacks. During this stage, it's also important to add some salt, as to bring out the flavors as well as bring out the water so the vegetables cook faster. Once the veggies cooked for about 20 minutes or so, I added a can of crushed tomato. This dish is flexible, so if you don't have any tomato on hand, you can just use some pasta sauce, and it really doesn't matter. We're in college anyway. After about 10 minutes, I threw in two cups of freshly, of fresh dark greens ripped into small strips. You can pretty much use any type of dark green, like kale or Swiss chard, but, I, but also you can substitute with uh, frozen spinach or whatever is lying around. Once this cooks down for about five minutes, I added cut-up pieces of stale bread, about two cups. These pieces were about the size of my thumbnail, but, you know, more or less, it doesn't really matter as long as they're uniform and that they cook down. Let the bread absorb the juices from the tomato before the final step, adding the liquid to actually make the soup. For this, I used two cans of chicken stock, but water can be substituted as well. It only takes about 20 to 30 minutes of simmering for the soup to come as one, but if you leave it on for more time to simmer, the better. This is a type of dish that tastes better the day afterwards, once all the flavors have married and get to know each other, and and gotten to know each other. This type of food is what I prefer to do on my own time. The soup is savory, but the vegetables and cooked down bread really add a nice sweet element to it all. Ribolita is extremely simple, and it works well any time of the year. In the summer, I tend to use fresh ingredients whenever I can, which usually ends up being cheaper. And take note, if you buy something in season, you will definitely get the better end of the deal. Ribolita is also very versatile. For example, the traditional recipe uses kale as a dark green, but I recently saw turnip greens at cheaper than dirt prices at the grocery store, so I use those instead. If I had some chicken lying around, I'll sometimes throw some chicken into the pot. If I have a can of beans, I'll add it too. This dish wasn't discovered out of the kitchen of a Michelin star restaurant. It was a product of poverty, poverty and the basic need to stretch a buck. But time and time again, I find myself craving this more than any of the greatest meals I've eaten in restaurants. Ribolita says my comfort food. It's my chicken noodle soup when I'm down. But here's the overall thing. It's not just the taste that gets me happy. It's the emotions it provokes. I can remember eating this hearty Italian dish at my grandma's house when I was little. And I'm glad I can still appreciate poor people food. And actually, for a matter of fact, it's dishes like this that are inspiring the big-time chefs these days. Ironic? I think not.
Thanks for listening, and have a delicious evening. Sounds great, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, now we're going to do something a little bit different. You know, we do get feedback from time to time, but this email was just so interesting. I thought I would share it with everybody because it's a pretty valid question that I think a lot of people have had on their minds from time to time. And so I'll also actually open it up to Chris and Evan and Mark if you have anything to throw in while we're talking about it here in the last few minutes. Roger from the Netherlands. He writes, Hi, I'm from the Netherlands, and I'm always wondering about the strange acronyms that radio and TV stations in the U.S. use. I guess the NC part of WKNC, but what do the first two characters signify? Thanks, Roger. I said, Roger, thank you. That's a great question, and thank you for listening all the way from the Netherlands. And actually, anybody else out there who's listening from someplace very interesting, just drop us a line and let us know where you're uh, listening from. But anyhow, the acronyms are call letters used to distinguish each broadcast station. W and K are assigned by international treaties for the United States, and by way of comparison, Canada uses C, etc., in the eastern half of the country, you'll find that nearly all stations, radio and TV, begin with W. The western half, including Alaska and Hawaii, use K. Some exceptions include old old stations that began broadcasting before the current rules were applied. The next three letters are mostly meaningless, and when applying for a license from the Federal Communications Commission, a station can request anything that may be significant to the locality or station format as long as it's available, like WASH in Washington, D.C., or uh, having some kind of HTZ for hits or KISS for KS. Anyhow, lately most stations prefer informal names, you know, like animal names, or uh, and they rarely mention their call letters, but federal law requires that stations announce the city in call letters every hour. We comply. You'll hear it here on KNC. Now, here's a little history lesson. WKNC used to go by WLAC in the 1920s, WNCS, which is obvious, and WVWP in the 1940s. The current call letters came about in the 1950s. Uh, some think that it means Wolfpack of North Carolina, the W and the K, formed from the word wolf pack, or we know North Carolina. Either could be true, but mostly it's about what we interpret it to be nowadays. But another less exciting theory is that the K in WKNC is meaningless because many other stations around here also use NC-related call letters. I won't call them out, but they know who they are, and they might have taken the one that we wanted. Now, obviously, wolf would be more appropriate, W-O-L-F, but it's taken by a Fox TV station in Pennsylvania. WNCS now actually belongs to a radio station in Vermont. So... That explains WKNC for you. Very interesting, John. And actually, this little radio chat has gotten me thinking about listening to uh, other radio stations. When I was a youngster, uh, the AM radio was a great resource as a kid listening to like sporting events from all over the country. I, I know that when, the, when it gets to be evening, it is much easier to get stations that are from far away. Yeah, I don't, yeah it, it would be really cool if... Mark or um, rather Roger could pick us up from the Netherlands, actually, you know, through the air. But of course, it was online. But you, that's right. That's an awesome hobby, DXing. I also did a lot of it when I was a kid. Um, AM and FM TV. It's a little harder to do nowadays, but uh, a lot of fun. Great way to get to know the country. Yeah, it's kind of funny. My uh, my dad is the biggest nerd ever. He uh, had a ham radio, um, and he'd like communicate with people with that like still and like. 2005, and it was just like that. There's something called the Internet. Yeah, it's yeah. extraterrestrials. Yeah, exactly. He was looking for E.T. Well, no matter where you are out there, whether it's outer space or out in North Carolina somewhere, we like hearing from you. Join us for next week's show. But first, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, drop us a line. Keep in touch with us on Twitter at WKNC EOT or WKNC881, Facebook, Eye on the Triangle, Public Affairs at WKNC.org, and our voicemail feedback line, 919 628 0869. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast of this program through iTunes. Search for Eye on the Triangle. Tonight's show will be available on Thursday. A big thanks to our guest tonight, Jen Hallwell, and all of our Soundbites interviewees. 
for my producer Chris Chaffee, our polemic freedom fighter Evan Garris, meteorologist Kathy Evans, correspondents Jacob Downey, Mason Morris, and Tom Anderson, sportscasters Tyler Everett and Taylor Barber, Master Chef Mark Herring. I'm your host and public affairs director John Boyer. Have a great night. Join us next time for more Eye on the Triangle and stay tuned for After Hours.